us through your word now, um, that we would be more transformed into your holiness, your greatness, and reflect you more and more day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Morning. Maybe seated. Oh, let's try it again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Come on now. You're the caffeinated service already, so. Uh, welcome to Sierra Bible Church. Glad you guys are with us. Um, if I haven't met you and you're visiting or uh, you're checking churches out, whatever it may be, and we haven't met, my name is Jesse and uh, part of the pastoral team here. We're in a, a series um, that, <laughs> by intention, uh, is our summer series. We've been in the book of Jonah for the entire summer, and people keep asking me, uh, you know, what, we're still going in Jonah? In fact, someone who hadn't been here for a couple weeks, they said, I left, I, I was gone for a few weeks, I came back, and I was wondering, what's Jesse preaching? Jonah. He's like, wow. And I said, yeah, it's our summer series. And I love summer so much that I'm going to try to stretch it till January. And, uh, and hopefully that'll heat up the snow for us then. And it'll all melt. And then those of you who ski will hate me. Um, but welcome. And uh, if you have your Bible this morning, please go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we have some ushers who'd love to let you use one of our Bibles. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible and you want one, go ahead and take it. We won't consider it stealing. You can, you can keep it. And uh, we'll get some more. So um, it, last week, if you showed up here, you went to the wrong spot. So we were all at the beach last week, and um, hopefully it wasn't too confusing for, for some folks. I know uh, a couple people who they said they showed up early uh, here and realized it was at the beach. And so they were right on time at church for one of the first times ever, they said. so. Um, and on that, I just want to share some really cool things, if I can if I can, that um, I'm really excited about. Number one, uh, last week we uh, baptized 11 uh, individuals. So 11 people proclaimed their faith in the gospel, got baptized, yep, um, which was really cool. We even uh, Brett and two of his sons ba got baptized together. It was really neat. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a grandmother and her daughter and then her daughter. And so just kind of a really neat family thing there. And then that puts us for the year, just so you know, um, some people think that we only do baptisms in August, which is at that beach deal, and we don't only do baptisms once a year. In fact, a gal who got baptized on Sunday, she got saved here a couple years ago, which is really awesome, and um, she was talking to her husband last week before the service, and she said, you know, I always thought I'd get baptized before I turned 70, and she's 69, and he said, well, the church picnic is this weekend. You can, your birthday is not till next weekend. You can, you can do it. And so she did. She got baptized before her 70th birthday. I, I say that because I would encourage you that, that if you don't have to wait that long, okay? You don't have to wait till 70 uh, to get baptized. And you don't have to wait till August to get baptized. If you want to get baptized, we can set up a tub in here within the week really easily and baptize you. So we, we've actually done four other baptisms this year. So as a whole this year, we've baptized 15 uh, souls, which, again, I think is worth uh, giving a hand applause for. <laughs> Celebrate it. Um, the first of the year, you may have remembered, we do a, um, we try to do an annual report every year and share with you the state of the church and what we're doing, a little bit more of vision of what we're trying to tackle. And at the first of the year, I mentioned to you a couple different needs that we had that all ranged in, like most of them ranged in thousands of dollars worth of need. One of them was a new church van. So the old one was dying. We needed a new church van. Our AV system is going out, um, which is, uh, very expensive. We've been remodeling upstairs Ray Hall for the children's ministry. Uh, and so I think it, I think all in all, uh, $20,000 was the quote we got for the AV system. 
$20,000 to redo Ray Hall, um, and then we needed some more parking spaces, and we thought that was going to cost us a bunch of money to do what we did outside. And then the van, of course, you know, how much vehicles are, they're not super cheap either. Well, here's the praise report. Uh, first of all, someone donated a, a used van, but in good condition. So we have a new church van. Um, praise the Lord, yep. <clears throat> uh, our, which is really perfect because um, our, our family car for our six of us uh, is in the shop. So we're using the church van. So uh, someone donated that free, free uh, of cost, so they didn't cost us anything. And then, um, and then we had some money in the funds for next door and, and for the AV stuff. And I was just really like timid to spend uh, really what was, looked like what was going to be $40,000. And mainly because, you know, the funds were there, but I want those funds to go to people. I want them to go to, to missions and ministry and, you know, things that lead towards salvation. It's kind of hard to say, ah, oh, spend this much money on carpet. It'll just look ugly. We'll deal with it. Well, uh, we were wrestling through, and um, and I just said, you know what, okay, uh, we needed to come to a place to make a decision. In fact, one of our elders, he said um, he said to, to me, he said, well, uh, maybe God's waiting for us to spend the money uh, before he gives us the money. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's how I use, that's how I operate on my budget. That's, <clears throat> uh, I don't know. Um, so as we prayed through it, I felt like, okay, we just need to pull the trigger on this and say yes and get this stuff done uh the day after literally the day after an anonymous check for the amount of what was needed uh came to the church so um no no charge <clears throat> so right now ray hall is almost complete it's almost completely finished so if you have not been upstairs you need to go over there not right now let me preach first um you need to go over there after the service you need to check it out and just see what a tremendous job uh, the team has uh, poured out. It looks amazing. It looks like a brand new building. And John Amon has put a ton of work into there. Um, uh, Stephen Casey from Casey Custom Builders donated a ton of time for us. Uh, just really blessed us. The way that we were able to do it um, saved us ten, about $10,000 right off the top. So uh, instead of spending $20,000 to do next door, it was a little over $10,000 uh, to make that upstairs dialed in for kids, dialed in for families. Uh, to go over there and learn the gospel and learn about Jesus. And, uh, and so I'm just really excited. Every, every, almost everything that we've basically done and needed is paid for in full. Um, and um, I think, I just say thank you, Lord, that you provide for our church. So, and uh, with that said, um, here, here's the next caveat, right? Like we do something really beautiful next door, and then someone's like, well, you know, now the bathroom's kind of ugly. And I said, listen, man, we need a break from some projects for a while. We've been very busy as a staff and with volunteers. And so, but with that said, there's still needs. We still want to um, continue to make the facility look beautiful. Uh, for those who don't know Jesus, when they come, they can feel welcome. Uh, and they can tell that we take what we do seriously. That's part of it. Uh, we know there are many of you that will come to church no matter what. And we're thankful for you. Um, but we're also trying to um, cast vision for people who never step into church. That when they step into church, they feel loved. They feel like we care about what we do. Um, especially if they have children like next door. And so, um, and really, uh, you know, Joe and Abby, because of their new vision over there, it just has created this buzz amongst the staff and some of the volunteers and team members to just pour in. And so we've really been um, getting some stuff done. So thank all of you who have helped out. Thank you for those of you who prayed. Thank you for giving. And um, like I said, we have more projects. So just because, you know, someone gave an anonymous gift doesn't free you from 
the commandment to continue to give to Jesus. So, because uh, we need new bathrooms now. Um, <clears throat> uh, okay, pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. If you would, we uh, have a tradition to stand during during the reading of scripture. So, if you were able to this morning, I would encourage you to stand and. Um, for those of you who've been with us several weeks, I'm sure you will giggle a little bit inside when I tell you to go to chapter 3, not chapter 4. Chapter 3, we're only going to read two verses, and we're going to focus in on some of the content in them. Chapter 3, verse 9, Jonah has proclaimed the message that God has given him. The king has responded by decreeing a fast sitting in sackcloth and wearing, I'm, I'm sorry, sitting in ashes and wearing sackcloth and calling the people to repent uh, of the violence that is in their hands. The king, after this response, says this in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Lord, we trust that you would remove distraction from the room. We trust, Lord, that you have brought in this room those mature, young in the faith, and even those who have not proclaimed your saving grace. You know those hearts. You look into those hearts. You weigh them. And Lord, then you deliver through your word the message needed. We ask this morning that you would be true to us, as you always are, but that we would be in tune. Again, not with the busyness of last week or the plans we have for this next week or the worry of what the next school year may hold. But Lord, just right now to be in the moment, not distracted by social media and text messages and phone calls, but just in the moment with you. We trust your spirit to do the work necessary this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 9. There is two words here we're going to focus on that are very popular words within the church. And I say that uh, comically, and they are the words fierce anger, God's wrath. Not words that are fun to say uh, in a church, especially if you're a seeker-sensitive church. Not words that we like to focus on, um, but nonetheless, there they are. The title of this morning's message is Fierce Anger, Fierce Mercy, and Fierce Worship. It's kind of the three points that we will go through this morning. And thinking of this anger, we actually have come to a place culturally within the church where some churches are actually going as far as is literally saying from the pulpit that they're detaching their message from the Old Testament. That the New Testament is the one that we focus on. There's no wrath, after all, in the New Testament, is there? There's just the love of God, the love of Christ, the love of Jesus on the cross, his death, his resurrection for us. But we can't simply deal with this reality that God, especially in the Old Testament, would do some of the things that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Things like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah those touching the Ark of the Covenant and literally being obliterated for their lack of respect and and holiness of God. This tension, however, exists. 
there is an anger and a wrath that exists within God. And just so we're clear, that is a message that is both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent or non-repentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of when, I'm sorry, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's New Testament, just as the Old Testament reads that God weighs the heart, he perceives it, and he keeps watch over your soul. Will he not repay man according to his work? Old Testament, New Testament both speak of the wrath or the anger of God and that it's a fierce wrath and anger of God. By contrast now, we have to recognize that there's also a wrath and anger of man. The Bible teaches that it is the anger of man that cannot obtain or produce the righteousness of God. And the reason I mention this is because when we go into chapter 4, there's a contrast. In fact, some of you in your Bibles, if you look at chapter 4, you may have a heading. My heading, for instance, over Jonah 4 is called Jonah's anger. We have the righteous anger, indignation of God in chapter 3, and then we see Jonah's silly anger in chapter 4. Man's anger, most times, probably 99% of the time, is a foolish, worthless endeavor. Is it not? I've learned this as a father. My anger just simply does not produce change. Dang it. <clears throat> However, again, we see within this particular text these words of God's righteous, fierce anger. Again, contrasting with the anger of Jonah. We have to wrestle with this, and the reason, uh, the reason for it, first of all, here's my first point with understanding God's wrath, is God's wrath, his fierce anger, is just. It's justified. It's always justified. None of us in this room, if we uh, heard of a, of a horrible murder or a horrible rape or some horrible crime committed against another human being, none of us in this room would simply say, just let, let the perpetrator go. In fact, we would demand some kind of justice. We would say this person has committed a crime. This person needs to pay for that crime, even the littlest of crimes. You live in a, a family-oriented place like Glenshire, and somebody flies through the 25-mile-per-hour zone going 65 miles per hour. Not only would you be infuriated as a parent, you would demand that justice would be served to that particular person, especially if they, they foolishly drove through there and, God forbid, hurt somebody. We then would say that person indeed needs to be punished. And the reason we struggle with God's fierce wrath and fierce anger is, is because we have this tendency to put the image of man and put that on the image of God. We put ourselves in place of judge, juror, and executioner. We're judging all the time. And, and, and not only in our judgment, we think we know what punishment should exist for each particular crime. Has anyone ever kind of watched and seen how our imperfect judicial system works? He got how many years? He got off? Those of you are old enough to remember the O.J. Simpson trial. What perfect judgment and execution there is there. And the reason this is important is because when God dishes out his fierce wrath, he is a perfect God. He knows how to dish out judgment when and how severe it should be. As I said in the first service, I said in the first service, uh, some of you are 
I said, I think I put it this way. No one in the first service is, is older than 60, right? Just I was trying to be nice. There was definitely people over 60 in that room. I'm sure there's a few of you here that are over 60, but we'll just pretend that that's all you have is 60 years. You're 60 years of age. If you're 60, I turn, uh, God's gracious to me, I just confess that I turn 40 next month. And I'm like a little nervous about it. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. And that's why I shared that with you this morning, so you could make fun of me. Yeah. Thank you. At 40 years old, I have a, a kind of wisdom, but I don't have the same wisdom for those of you who are older than myself. Some of you are grandparents. You know what it is to graduate your children from high school. I don't. You've experienced the loss of, of family or friends or just certain things that come with life, a maturity, a seasoning that comes with life. But nonetheless, even if you are only 60 years old or if you're 70 or 80 or whatever age it is, that's all you have is 80 years of wisdom. The rest of the wisdom that you've gathered has either come from reading or from studying or maybe from some parental guidance or friend. And so at the end of the day, however, though, after 200 years of knowledge, that's it. You're just, you're done because you haven't lived that. You don't know. And, 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 and when we think about it in that context as we're constantly judging people, God is a God who's been around for a while. He's been around for thousands of years. In addition to that, because he's outside of space and time, God actually knows all, not all of history, but all of future as well. He knows everything, absolutely everything. Therefore, he is the only perfect judge. He is the only one who knows when wrath should be given and when, when, when mercy or grace should be poured out. J.I. Packer says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. See, God's response to Nineveh and saying that he will destroy Nineveh in 40 days is justified. God's wrath and anger, his punishment towards sin is always justified. It's never just some random thing. In fact, if you remember, we've been studying about Nineveh. Nineveh the city that Jonah went to, the capital of Assyria. Some of the most violent people, shockingly violent, a fierce kind of violence. It was a violent place. It was a violent empire filled with violent people who slaughtered the helpless. In fact, it was the Assyrian practice for kings, such as the king in Nineveh. It was their religious practice. It was their duty, in fact, to erect a statue of themselves within the city to show their glory, to be somewhat accustomed or, or felt as if they were a type of deity. And each of these statues by each king which filled the entire city would have had an inscription that was the purpose of which was to instill fear into the visitors of the city. And that inscription was to be written on there, the conquests, the things that the king would boast about and his accomplishments. One such king, his inscription reads like this. I felled 50 of their fighting men with the sword. I burnt 200 captives from them and defeated in battle on the plain 332 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool. The rest of them, the ravens and the torrents of the mountain swallowed. I carried off captives and their possessions from them, 
I cut off the heads of their fighter of their fighters and built with them a tower before their own city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. Of those, I cut off some of their arms and hands, their noses, their ears, their extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of their heads, and I hung their heads on trees around the city. Ooh. Some of you think it's hard to evangelize your coworkers. Yet this is the place that God calls Jonah to be the ultimate missionary. Jonah, go evangelize this people group, this very violent, very social unjust people group. I say all of this, and I read that to, to remind you of something, that God would have been completely justified, and I think we all would have said amen had he wiped Nineveh from the planet. I would argue I would argue that the world probably would have been a better place without Nineveh. It would have been a much better place without Nineveh. But I also would argue, from the point of God, that the world would be a much better place with a repentant Nineveh. I would add to that, for some of us in this room, the world might be a better place if we didn't exist in it. Some of you may even struggle with that kind of depression. And maybe that's true, but I do believe in the same way the world would be a better place not without you, but rather with you as a repentant individual. The person who is repentant, the person that is turning away from their sin and running to God, that person has an impact around those around them. Some of the greatest testimonies in all of the world are those who have shared an ugly background, a hardship that they rightly deserved, came out of that to some, from some way or another by God's great grace and then proclaimed how God good is to them. Some of us struggle with this reality that God would be angry at sin. But when we see something like this, it's easy in our minds to say this is justifiable. And the reality of this is that the message of God, the message of God speaks to the reality that all of us are the Ninevites. The book is written not just so you can somehow be distant from Nineveh and judge them and say, man, they sure do deserve it. I can't wait like Jonah does. Jonah chapter 4, he preaches the message. He goes outside of the city. And his whole intent is to sit outside the city in hopes that he sees Nineveh go, boo. Some of us are that way in our lives. We look at others. We look at people on, on the news and we see what kind of crimes they commit. And we, I can't believe it. How many times have you said that when someone's done something super, super, super stupid? I can't believe it. How dare they? Right, the other day, my wife and I were trying to get down to the lake. We were sitting at a drive-thru in a restaurant. There was only one car in front of us. It took way too long for us to get our tacos. And I yelled out in the car, come on! And Allie looked at me like, really? And I kind of smiled and was like, yeah. We waited even longer. And that's when my four-year-old daughter said, come on, Taco Bell. See, purposefully I try to teach them certain things, and yet it's the stuff I don't teach them that they learn. Our wrath is imperfect. Our judgment is imperfect. All of us, however, are like the Ninevites. The book is written to teach us that we are Jonah, we are Nineveh. None of us deserve God's grace. Some of us ask the question, why does God save some and not others? Why does God's 
God's purpose of salvation fall upon his saints that whom, he, who, whom he chooses and he predestines and brings them to himself. And we say, how is it that others are going to go to hell? Why, God? It's the wrong question. The right question is, why does God save anybody at all? Why does God save anybody at all? See, the reality is, in regards to salvation, is that nobody in the Bible ever gets injustice. No one. Some get exactly what they deserve, and others get grace. And we struggle with that. Because if you're not a believer this morning, and you say, God, God just, he wouldn't do that. He is, my friends, God is uncompromisingly holy and perfect. And we forget this. Anything that goes against his nature is worthy of his wrath and anger. Again, to be clear, the wrath of God is not just an Old Testament thing. It's also a New Testament thing. Romans 1.18 reads, again, New Testament, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One pastor reads in regards to the, uh, the wrath of God from the Bible, the wrath of God is eternal, terrible, deserved, and escapable because of the death and resurrection of Christ. However, let the Apostle John remind us of how terrible and eternal the wrath of God is with just one of his most dreadful images in the return of Jesus Christ himself in Revelations chapter 19, verse 15. God is described this way. Jesus himself is described this way. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The picture of Jesus' second return is not like that of his first. In the first coming of Christ, we see a humble Savior dying on the cross for our sins. But in the second return, on that glorious day, Christ will not come on a cross. He will come with a sword bearing from his mouth to punish unrighteousness. When Jesus comes back again for us, those of us who are part of the church, those of us who have made a proclamation of faith to believe in the God of heaven and the God of earth and the God of the sea and the dry land, as it says in Jonah, those of us who have made that proclamation, when Jesus comes back, there is an amazing good news for you and I. It's going to be a glorious day, a most amazing day. We had some visitors at the lake last week, and they said, I have never seen church like this. Because they're at the lake, and, and the backdrop is the mountains and Donner, and luckily there wasn't smoke at the lake that day. And for them, it's like, we've never done church like that. They said, you, we do baptisms inside. You do them in the lake. Beautiful. But nothing will compare when Christ comes back for his bride. Nothing. However, in contrast to that, those who have refused, as it says in the passage I just read, who are suppressing the truth, that day will be a horrendous day, a horrible day. Take note of what it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 here, that that wrath that comes from God comes from God Almighty. It comes from an all-powerful God, the God who has all the power in the universe. A God who has all of the atomic power, all the electromagnetic power, all the gravitational power, 
All the power and the greatest explosions that are or ever will be amongst the greatest stars in space. God possesses all of that power. And that anger that God pours out in regards to that power, we have to understand, is a loving response to sin. It's putting an end to the violence. God pours it out to say, no more. Enough is enough. Right now we are, we are in a patient time with God. He is being very patient with humanity. I'm sure some of you read the news, you go, why has he not come back? Even my little ones who don't understand fully the darkness of this world are crying out for the return of God. My littlest Jolie, the little girl at least, she says, ah, oh, Dad, when is he coming back? We say, we don't know. And she goes, why doesn't he come right now? Doesn't he want us to see him now? Her childlike attitude, a childlike Faith, she doesn't fully understand that God is being patient and merciful. We're within the 40 days of God's grace that more people within the United States of America, within the world, globally, would come to know the saving grace of God. One pastor writes, um, I don't have a, quote, a slide for this, I'm sorry. God is love and God does all things for his glory. He, love his, he loves his glory above all, therefore God rules the world in such a way that brings himself maximum glory. This means that God must act justly and judge sin, responding with wrath. Otherwise, God, otherwise, God would not be God. God's love for his glory motivates his wrath against sin. Admittedly, God's love for his own glory is a most sobering reality for many and not good news for sinners. It is, after all, as Hebrews 10.31 says, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. His anger is justifiable. It's a correct response to sin. We wouldn't have it any other way. So this leads us to a question within the text. It leads us to a question in life in general. Why is it then within the Old Testament, which seems to be a different kind of God that's in the New Testament, why is it that we don't see the same kind of wrath poured out in the New Testament the way we do in the Old Testament? After all, uh, we haven't seen a fireball from heaven wipe out an entire city, though some pastors have actually proclaimed this such. Some have even prophesied, mistakenly so, that God would send a particular kind of fireball against San Francisco or against New York City or these places that we consider evil empires, a, a center of sin, a center of in, injustice socially and, and otherwise. Why is it we don't see the same kind of outpouring? Though some pastors would argue that a natural disaster is God's way of pouring out his wrath. Some would say that ISIS is that. In fact, it's interesting to note that Nineveh sits exactly where ISIS was born in Iraq. The sad story of Nineveh is that they will respond to God's love, and they will respond for God, to God's love for about 150 years. And then after that, they return back to their evil ways. The result of which we see continuing to this day, a false worship of a false god doing things that are very violent and very angry. The Middle East, after all, is a very violent place. So why? My answer to that question is a simple one, the gospel. The reason we don't see the same kind of wrath, in my opinion, is because of what is shared in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? That word propitiation. We've talked about it before. Some of you will remember. Some of you, some of you know the word because you value it as a very powerful, uh, very important word we should keep close to our hearts. The word propitiation literally means a wrath-bearing 
sacrifice. What is he saying in 1 John? He's saying Jesus has taken the wrath of God. That wrath has been ultimately poured out upon one man. For those in the church, we don't experience wrath in the same way. God is not against us. God is not violent toward us. God has absorbed that wrath upon himself that we would experience his grace. Another way to put it is like this. Jonah in chapter 2 experienced the wrath of God so that the Ninevites could experience the grace of God. In the same way, because Jesus is a better Jonah, Jesus experiences the wrath of God so we as sinners could know the grace of God. One man experiencing the punishment so a whole group of people can experience grace. My friends, God is not just fierce in his anger. He is radically fierce in his mercy and his grace. To that you should say, amen. As I went there a little earlier, God is more ready to forgive than you are ready to repent. God is willing to forgive you. God is willing to run to you. He's willing to close the gap. It shares with us in this passage that when God saw what they did, that they turned from their evil way, that God then relented. And that word relented is the same word for repentance. God repented from what he was going to do. Now again, we run into a dilemma. Is God a God that needs to repent? Not in the way that you and I do. He doesn't have to change his mind the way that you and I do. Our repentance is a turning away from evil, a turning away from doing the injustices that that cause us a a departure from a, a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ. His repentance, however, is different. He has a plan in mind. I'm going to punish you because you are worth the punishment. The world will be a better place without you. However, I will repent of that if you will repent of your sins. Again, we run into another dilemma. I thought God was immutable. I thought God was unchangeable. So why is he changing his mind? Well, my friends, this isn't an issue of of him changing his mind in that way. In fact, this is, in fact, him being true to himself. You see, if if God says, I'm going to punish you because you are not a loving people, you are an unkind people, that's who God is. He's a God who can't, can't stand that kind of violence, that kind of ugliness. But then when the people are repentant, and their hearts become changed in their faith in God, how can God punish them then? He would cease to be gracious. If anything, this establishes the grace of God. It also teaches us this weird kind of principle that though God declares the salvation of those who he desires, that he he predestines those that he desires to be in relationship, we still have a human responsibility to return to God and repent of our sin. And that if we do that, there's some kind of condition here that God will always respond to us when the heart is right. Joel 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. He's speaking of repentance. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. Why? Because he is gracious, compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? Similar words as the king here. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Whoa. Do you hear that? 
you may have a particular kind of sin in your life, and God's shocking response is to give you warning. You know why God gives you a warning? The call to a warning is the call to also erase the wrath. I'm angry at sin. Why did you tell me that, God? Is it because you want to destroy me? No, 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 no. It's to remind you to run to me. Run to me, church. And then you run, and he goes, okay, now I'm going to relent, and then I'm going to leave a blessing. You deserve wrath. You deserve punishment. You deserve a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of treatment. But instead, I'm not going to give you hell, which you deserve. I'm going to give you myself, my presence. Have you ever wondered just that the response that God gives graciously, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's shockingly just... Some of you know I, I mentioned I've been quoting a pastor here and there for the last several months because I, I didn't know of him. People have known of him. Great Bible teacher. Just, just a man from all standpoints. Just a great preacher. He planted a church, and in planting that church, it, it thrived. He was biblically centered, gospel centered, loved the people, trained the people, discipled the people, and uncompromising in regards to preaching God's word. The first time I heard him, I stopped taking notes. I felt like I was just in a holy place, like Moses on the, the mount, you know, just I got to take my shoes off, hide in the cleft of the rock, and hope I don't get obliterated and just enjoy the moment. And after hearing him, just like Moses came down the mountain glowing, I was like, oh my. next thing you know, I'm grabbing the staff. I'm like, you got to listen to this guy. I'm grabbing friends in the church. You got to listen to this guy. He's amazing. One morning, I opened up my phone, scrolling through social media, and found a confession. His confession? When he planted his church, he had cheated on his wife. He fell back into that same adulterous sin not that long ago and was confessing it, wrote a letter of confession, a letter of stepping away from the pulpit. This was a man that even in his sin was bringing just amazing pieces of knowledge of God. And some of us might ask that question, especially in God's wrath. Why? Why would God bless that man? Why would God bless that church? Why would he allow that ministry to continue to go on as it did? Why? And the reality is because the gospel message is never about the man preaching it. It's always about the truth that's coming from that man's mouth. What he spoke never ceased to not be true. In fact, we may even dare say that sometimes God is most edified and glorified in your stupidity. Now, nobody can give this man credit. God alone gets the credit. We come to this place at times as a church when we've had pastors that we've loved and, and cared for and they've written books and we've had the books in the bookstore. We find out that they've sinned and then all of a sudden we're in the discussion, what do we do with the books? Burn them. We can't be associated with the guy. We can't let people know that we, 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 we liked him at all. Lest somebody label us like that. Well, then, my friends, we have an even bigger problem. God still used David. He still used Moses the murderer. He still used Paul the murderer of the church. He used Peter, a great sinner. No one in the Bible, if you look, who's ever declared the goodness and the greatness of Jesus Christ ever had it together. They are a mess. So here's the confession this morning. Obviously, you probably understand that I may not have it all together. That might be surprising to some of you. Some not so much. 
Again, the emphasis isn't on the person who brings the message. After all, Jonah's heart is not even in this message. He doesn't care for Nineveh. He didn't go there because he felt called to a particular people group. As some say, well, why are you going to Africa? I feel called to the people. Oh, why are you helping the homeless? I feel called. Jonah, why are you going to Nineveh? I have to. I have no choice. Not happy about it. So he mopes up and down the streets for three days. You better uh, repent or you're going to die. I'm going outside the city now. I hope to see your blood splattered across the mountainside. The point of this is not to just demean humanity because God has a higher view of humanity than anyone else in this entire room. It's to elevate the goodness and the grace of God. He could pour out his wrath, but because he's also gracious and loving and kind, he gives us time to repent of our sin. He has a relentless, fierce mercy that he wants to pour out to his people. He's giving all of us even an opportunity now to repent of that sin, to turn away from those things that we know are unholy, that we would turn back to God and run back into his arms. God grants mercy in chapter 1 of Jonah to the sailors, who are pagan sailors. In chapter 2, he still gives mercy to Jonah after being in the whale. And then in chapter 3, Nineveh gets the opportunity. There's a theme. We sin, he's merciful. We sin, he's merciful. Husbands, when your wife sins, what's your response? Got one. Good job, Andy. Pretty sure Amber's going to disagree with you a little bit. Wives, what is your response? Parents, what is your response? Grandparents, what is your response? Employee, what is your response? The response should be a shocking, fierce grace. None of us have obtained, none of us are perfect. But those of us who have proclaimed Christ as our Savior are hidden within his holiness, hidden within his perfect righteousness, and therefore we should see each other in that light. What is God's plan for his elect? What is God's plan for his people? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath. Everyone say amen. amen. His plan for you is not punishment, it is not anger. But to obtain salvation. To obtain salvation, who? Through Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And now here's the right response. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up just as you're doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Why? Because you're at peace with God. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, there's the kind of kindness we should have within the church, and that same kind of kindness should permeate into the outside community. What is our response then? That God has a particular kind of wrath that exists within himself, an anger of sin that he just simply won't tolerate or put up with. 
But the even better news is that his response to his anger is to pour that wrath out onto Jesus Christ. So that you and I will never taste the wrath, we will taste the grace of God. This, my friends, is a fierce kind of mercy and grace. Well, our response should be threefold. One, we should respond with a holy fear. A holy kind of awe and respect and reverence to God. We should have a holy kind of fear. But it's not the fear that God is our enemy because God is not our enemy. In fact, one pastor says, don't fear God as your enemy. Fear him as the one who was once your enemy and still has the infinite power and holiness, in essence, to destroy you, but still doesn't. The illustration I used this morning was, imagine, imagine if you will, you're about to fall off a 10-story building. You're just right there. You're done for. You feel it in a moment. Your life flashes before your eyes, and you're going down, and poof, you're, you're toast. There's no surviving this. And at the last minute, someone grabs your T-shirt, yanks you off the edge of the building, and you're saved. Right? In that moment, all of a sudden, are you no longer afraid? Or are you still... And you're just blown away at the fact that someone at the right time in the right place pulled you back from that 50-story building. The illustration is the same way in regards to our salvation. You were falling off of that cliff towards doomsday, and God relented and pulled you back. It's still in your mind. It's still there. The quote that I think fits this best is this one here, but now here's a great fear-transforming reality. This fear-transforming reality explains why Christians sing with joy and worship and Muslims don't. Fear and trembling are not because God is our enemy, but because he has saved us from his wrath through Christ. And now we stand on the brink of the grand canyon of his holiness and justice and grace and wrath with an unspeakable wonder, knees wobbling, hands trembling, but overcome with worship at the depth of his majesty, not with worry that we might fall into that wrath. The reality for you and I, is God's wrath real? Yes. Have you been saved completely from it? Yes. If you have turned away from the worship of false gods, and into the arms of the right, one, and only true God, Jesus Christ. You know what this should do for us? Give us that holy awe, as I mentioned, that's number one. Number two, it should utterly change the way we worship as a family. It should change our corporate worship. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly what happened in Nineveh. Nineveh at one time was worshiping many false gods with passion, verver. They were going for it, man. The reason they were so violent is because their gods were violent. And then all of a sudden, their corporate worship completely changes. Even the livestock starts singing praises to God. You remember? The fast was for animals, for the beasts, as well as for the people. Forty days without food for a cow, he's going to start to sing out to God. Imagine your home filled with just a corporate kind of gratitude and thanksgiving. It should change the way we worship as a family. It should change the way we worship as a church. We should be singing aloud to the goodness and the greatness of God. When we sing the words that we actually sing, we should mean them. We should be passionate about them. They should cause us to move. I love seeing Mick up here with this big old bass thing. What do you call it? Bass thing will work. All right. Isn't there a technical term? I'm stupid. So... The reason I mention this is because, man, I was watching you. I was watching you earlier, Mick, and I love it when the guys up here are they're they're into the music. 
Mick's got the coolest instrument up here. Now, now I'm gonna be looking at you, man. I'm sorry, but he's up there. And, you know, there's some people like you can't worship God that way. Oh my, God. why not? You know, in in the Old Testament, David rips off his clothes. He's so excited to worship God. I would highly discourage that here. <laughs> Moving during bass, cool, ripping off clothes. Do that at home. It should change our corporate worship. It should change the way we sing. You know, Brad is doing his job as he's encouraging. He's saying, you know, the last song he's saying, clap. And I know it's tough for some of us. You know, I, I was doing it. I was doing it earlier. Today. I was like, ah, forget it. I'll wobble. In addition to that, as we close here, it should change the way that we evangelize. This reality of wrath, fierce wrath, fierce mercy, it should utterly change the way that we evangelize. Romans 5, 18, 5, chapter 5, verse 8 through 9 says, God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The reason that I think this is important is because because there are so many people in this world who are destined for the wrath of God and not the grace of God. And we all know people that need this message. They're sinners, they're lost, and they need the message. On occasion, if you just drive through downtown Truckee, or as I've had the opportunity over the last several weeks to be driving through Tahoe City, through Incline, and to look at the shoreline and to just people watch and to see all of the different personalities and people who are aimlessly wandering the world for happiness. And knowing that within my mind and heart, I have the key that unlocks all the doors they want opened. We recognize all of a sudden that, that, that God has this kind of mercy for sinners that, that just goes beyond our understanding. In fact, as a, as a little bit of a preview of chapter 4, the way that God views the people of Nineveh, we view them as people who deserve punishment. God, however, says this to Jonah in chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand? You know that is not God dogging their intelligence? What kind of person doesn't know their left hand from their right hand? A child. God doesn't see Nineveh as a violent city, though they are. He sees them as young children, like sheep without a shepherd. When you cross the lake and you see people they cut you off on the freeway. They cut you in line. They wrong you in some form or fashion. Is your first response anger? Which mine, unfortunately, is as a confession. Or is it their sheep without a shepherd? Dear Lord, I pray for their salvation. And not in this kind of way, right? Not, oh, you need to be saved. <laughs> no. No, a genuine care. I told Joe, our youth guy, our uh, children's teacher, we were, when I said, whenever we go out to eat, you know, there's somebody at the fast food joint we might go to or something, and I see someone who's in their 50s, and they're standing behind the counter of a fast food joint, and the first thing in my mind isn't, isn't, man, she really messed up in life, or he really messed up in life. In my mind, I think, this person has a story. There's a reason that person's 50 years old and they're still working for minimum wage. And it isn't to dog them and say they're less than. It's that there's something probably in that person's life, most likely, 
Maybe not. Maybe they chose that because they really like it. I, I don't know. But the point being is that they have a story. And, and then my heart goes out for them. Like, you know what they really need more than anything? They need to come to church on Sunday and feel the love of God's saints to experience his presence. Uh, the message of Jonah should change the way we evangelize. It should change the way we share our faith. It should change the way we view people, starting with our friends and our families, our wives, our husbands, our kids, and then into the rest of the world. It's so my prayer as we continue to dive in to chapter 4. We will be in chapter 4 next week, I promise, that God would continue to change us. With that, if you're an elder or a deacon this morning, I want to invite you to come forward to pass out communion. Um, Colin, yeah, if you'd come up and then uh, make sure I have enough. Andrew, yep, thank you. Greg, thanks. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and pass out the bread now. You guys can go ahead and pass out bread now as I just share a few thoughts. And then um, the juice. I'm going to um, take a few moments and, and just share with you, first of all, in communion, communion is, it's kind of a, it's a way to touch and to feel and sense the reality that Jesus has taken the wrath of God. The matzah bread that we use typically, it has pierced holes in it and it has a, some burnt stripes. You'll notice if you get a piece big enough, you'll see. It's a reminder that he was pierced for our, transgress our transgressions, that he was beaten for our iniquities. He took upon us, upon him, the shame that we have. It's a way to understand that God didn't aim his wrath at you. He aimed it at Christ. It was a terrible experience that Jesus partook of on the cross. You're going to experience things in life that are not fun, but you'll never experience a cross. You'll never experience the separation of God. Communion's that reminder. It's also important for me to take note that communion is for those of us in the room that have made a declaration within our hearts that we believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible actually teaches that if you partake in communion as a non-believer, you're heaping up more wrath for yourself. And if you're not a believer this morning, you may not believe, but I would not want to do that to you, so I would encourage you not to partake. It's always funny to me when I invite someone to church who's not a Christian, and they tell me, I don't believe in God. I was like, it's all right, man, you should come anyways. This is the kind of language I use for evangelism. You should come, just check it out, come and see what it's all about. They come with me. I might even, you know, say, I'll pick you up or whatever. And then they say this, well, I don't want to go in the building. Why? I'm afraid I might get struck with lightning. <laughs> Trying to put two and two together. You just told me you didn't believe but you're worried about getting struck dead? You really do need to come. You should come anyway. I promise you, you won't die. And um, it's just a beautiful reminder for us to hold in our hands that God's wrath has been poured out, not on us, but upon his son. A judicial wrath that we are well deserving of. <clears throat> I want to read to you a hymn, as I told Brad earlier, I didn't want to make Brad try to learn the hymn this week because it's kind of tough to learn something like this in a week. But, and I, I would love to sing it to you, but that would be God's wrath poured out this morning. 
and I don't want to do that because I don't know how to sing. As a reminder that God is more ready to forgive, God is more ready to forgive than you are to repent. It reads like this. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Feel him prostrate in the garden, on the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him, sinner. Will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. In the arms of my dear Savior. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. The line for me, my friends, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. We are all Ninevites. We're all Jonah. We're all in need. And we're united by that need as a family. That Jesus Christ has shed his perfect spotless blood on our behalf that we would know not the wrath of God, that we would know the peace of God. It's glorious news. It should transform your heart. It should transform the way that you encourage one another, you love one another, and you sing. As we partake in communion, let us remember the great sacrifice that Jesus made. What he has done for us. And then um, when you guys finish that out, for Andrew and um, Colin and Greg uh, and um, Russ and Travis, you can join in too. I did it in the first service. We'll do it in the service too. As we, we close, I want our elders and our deacons to stand up here, and they're going to be ready to pray for you. And so this morning, if you, if you have something you just want to bring to the gracious arms of Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you to come. Some of you have shared with me when we've done this in the past that you really enjoy it. Some have said, I would never come. It's too embarrassing. And I'm not here to, to judge you whether you come or not. I'm just here to give you an opportunity to pray with people who are your leaders in the church who care for you greatly and desire to see you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And let's just, you know, for the spirit of transparency, we're broken people. And um, I know you guys well enough I've been here for uh, 15, almost 15, 14 years. Um, and uh, I know some of your stories. I know some of your pains. I know some of your addictions. I know some of your depression, your anxiety, 
your anger? Can I just be a human representative? You know, as God would say to you, I, I still love you. I still care for you. I, I'm not judging you. I don't think less of you. If anything, I feel like I'm in the same boat. But you're cared for. And we want you to be a part of this family through thick and thin. But there's an opportunity here not to, not to pretend. And for some of you, it might just be a visible way to say, man, like Jonah, I've got to arise and i got to go. And just to call out for some extra strength from some people who want to help you. You know, these guys, we had a meeting a little while ago, and I think it was Russ who kind of brought it up and said, man, I, I want the church to know who I am because I want to, be, I want to pray for them. I want to help people. I want to, I want to see them grow in their faith. And these men have dedicated more than you'll ever know to see this church grow into what it is today and, and to take it to where God wants to take it. And I mean, you look around just a little bit, and, you know, thank you, Jesus. This room is full. Man, God is good to us. But there's more people who need to be saved. And I think that God wants to use us to be a part of that. I don't know how we're going to fit them in here. Maybe love one another means you let them sit on your lap or something. <laughs> um, I want God to use our imperfect team and our imperfect family to reach an imperfect Truckee to worship a perfect God. Lord, we are powerless without you. We're in need of the gospel, not just upon salvation, but we need it to hold us, to hold us together. We pray, Lord, that you would never allow us to lose the wonder and awe of the gospel of grace, the message of salvation, the condition of mankind, the perfection of you. May it be something that continually renews us to be more like you every day. As we partake in communion, Lord, our response really above and beyond anything else is to just say thank you. We are filled with gratitude. Lord, we do not want to be entitled and demand more. We just want to sit and say thank you. So again, Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name. body broken. So again, as we sing, uh, if you'd like to come forward, please feel free. They'd love to pray with you. Uh, with that said, um, if you, again, if you get a chance <clears throat> um, afterwards to go next door and just see what God has done through our saints to check out next door, I want to encourage you to go take a look and, and see how nice it is over there. So God bless you. Have a good afternoon. Friends, will you stand with us as we uh, close in the last song and for anyone, again, that wants to come up for prayer, feel free to come up during. Uh, but let's, uh, let's remember who we serve. And let's join as we uh, lift his name up.